Welcome to Sit Down and Think, where we get the skinny on what's happening in the world of animation. With Kipo in the age of Wonder Beast dropping a new season this June, I'm sitting down here with series creator Radford Christ. How's it going? Good to be here. Great to have you. So, with Kipo, what was the biggest inspiration for the series? From the beginning, um, well, I was, wor- I was working in movies at the time, but there was so much new stuff happening in television series, series between... Walking Dead, Breaking Bad, Game of Thrones. It was like a this kind of renaissance in TV. And I was just excited to try to do a longer format narrative. So the big one was Walking Dead and um, Game of Thrones and kind of building out a world and a narrative like that. And that's kind of where it came from. You were building off that uh, apocalyptic thing. But in this case, instead of zombies, you're going more like mutated animals. Yes. And then the tribes are almost like in Walking Dead. I mean, in uh, Game of Thrones, we have the different kingdoms around town. Okay, that's that's nice. That's clever. I like that. With this being an adaption of your webcomic, what were some things that made it into the series? And what was something that got cut out or had to be cut out? Let's see. Uh, um, for the most part, all the personalities of the characters stayed the same. The basic plot, she her her underground city had been destroyed she ended up on the surface all of that stayed the same when i was made because i was inspired by walking dead and game of thrones i was planning to make the webcomic a bit more gritty so things like jamak was going to get his tongue cut off when he got kicked out of the game <laughs> i was going full game of thrones with it wow, so it appears we snipped his tie um but in the comic, Benson was older, and they wanted a group of kids, so we aged him down. Uh, and then a lot of stuff just wasn't mapped out or planned out in the same way. So a lot of it is just new as we w- worked with the group and came up with ideas. So like you mentioned, like, <laughs> like Jamak getting his tongue caught off, like you trying to go Game of Thrones. It's like, wow. <laughs> I, I can only <laughs> imagine how... Um, how Kipo would have been if it was more towards the adult. It's it's interesting because as I started writing it and drawing it and visually, it just leaned into what you see in the series naturally. Like things started just kind of looking cute or looking fun. And at some point I was like, well, you know what? I might have these intentions of going for that more adult show, but it just kind of came out <laughs> the way it came out. And I, and I just let it be what it was, you know? I think it managed to turn out really great because I do get that sort of epic vibe with Kipo having slightly that Game of Thrones feel, but not going Game of Thrones. Yeah, for sure. For this season, we found out Kipo is part mute. What's that got to mean for humans and mute relations? Um, well, we always, from the get-go, we always figured if you had these two warring camps it might be nice to have someone who's a bit of both to bring them together. That, that was kind of the idea. Like she's more going to be that big bridge between the mutes and the humans. Like that spark of the revolution, spark of the unity type stuff. Exactly. For Wolf, she managed to have like this very tragic backstory involving her being hunted by wolves. What was like the biggest inspiration for her? When I set out to make her, in my mind, she was Mad Max. 
just in a 10 year old girl's body. Whenever I was writing dialogue or her attitude, I, I was treating it like a very stoic, serious, you know, surface survivor. Uh, the backstory Bill Wolkoff actually came up with um, because he just looked at the wolf on her head and went, oh, what if she was raised by those wolves and she had a murder? <laughs> you know, he came up with that whole thing and I was like, dude, are they going to let us do that? <laughs> and I, they did. I don't know. <laughs> just the clothing gave her the backstory, basically. Yeah, I think Bill looked at the drawing and just went, well, she obviously killed a talking wolf and she's not a bad person. So what is the story there, you know? <laughs> and I think it led to that. You mentioned like Mad Max and a 10-year-old girl's body. Like, honestly, I see it very much now with that imagery. <laughs> like, that like fits her perfectly. Thank you. Do you plan on like going any further with Wolf's backstory? Uh, you know, I think that's about as much as they're going to let us show in a PG cartoon. <laughs> I don't think we can show much more than that. People keep, like, people, like, want to see the death, and, the, and I'm like, do you really want to see it? Or maybe it's better left to the imagination. <laughs> I think that works pretty well, keeping things more as a, just the unknown. Like, yeah. it, it adds the mystique to the series. Mm-hmm. The biggest draw to me was definitely this world, this post-apocalyptic world filled with a lot of these luscious greens and just vibrant colors. What exactly caused all of this to happen? Like, will that ever be revealed? I specifically didn't want to. I, I wanted to, I, I feel like, it's just a personal opinion, like, I, I want to know more about the current and how they're dealing with it. Um... It's just a personal taste thing. And it's kind of funny because every single one of the writers and myself all have different theories about how it started. But, you know, uh, nobody, I just think nobody knows in this world exactly what happened. I think that makes a lot of sense. Keeping things just a matter of all about what is in the now rather than what's in the past. Yeah. Just keeping all the focus to where it needs to be on Kipo and her friends. Because it also, it has nothing to do with them. It happened 200 years before them. So it'd be like if you're watching a series about uh, L.A. or something, and then you suddenly flash back to when L.A., I don't know, became <laughs> part of America or something. Okay, right. Makes perfect sense. Like, getting on the show, I realized it's like, yeah, you mentioned it's 200 years ago. It's like, not even Kipo's grandparents were around for that. It's like, how does how would that connect back to them anyway? So what do you feel was like the hardest thing to execute for this season? Oh, uh, I mean, from a technical standpoint, uh, tracking her spots <laughs> as she transforms was just physically demanding on everyone. Uh, <laughs> uh, just... Um, that's a that's a tough question. What was the hardest thing? Uh, you know, uh, whew, I'm trying to I'm trying to think of how to say things without getting me in hot water. We didn't have so many notes first season. <laughs> we had more notes second season. <laughs> so we had we had more people to kind of man to manage. <laughs> 
Hey, so it, it's just a matter of like, it was like with the first season, it's all about just put what you have, just get it done. And then by the second season, it's all about, okay, here's where we build this and that, like stuff like that, like building upon your foundation. Yeah, you start to just get more people involved. So it's just more people to to manage. Uh, yeah. <laughs> All right. You know, anytime you get a note, you always try to, you're like, hmm, how can we address this? But as you get more and more, it just, it, it's like a, it's a skill in itself. Are things like easier for you with season two? Do they feel easier now? Uh, I mean, it's interesting. Season two becomes harder because season one, you have more time. Season one, you can afford more backgrounds. And this is the same for all animated series. They, they try to set it up where like, oh, well, maybe for season two, you could reuse a lot of backgrounds or you could reuse a lot of stuff. Or, oh, maybe now that you've gotten good at it, maybe you do it twice as fast. <laughs> so uh, it definitely is harder doing a second season. Mm. Okay, that's something I didn't really think too much about. I've always thought, because I, I do notice like with shows, the first is the first season can be a bit more, you're trying to find your footing and all that. Then as you go on, like new seasons, you you found it and now it starts to come in a little bit easier. But, I didn't, but then I didn't, they go, well, then in that case, let's go twice as fast. <laughs> <laughs> so it just, it's like now it's like, there's more demand to like tell the stories and have it connect proper. Yeah. Exactly. All right. Are we likely to get a return of the Tempercast? They were like a major favorite among a lot of people, me included. I, I don't want to give any spoilers for season two. Uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, all right. Uh, any hints you can give of like any new creatures and the gang are going to come across? I guess I'll give a hint because it's in the trailer. You get to see there are more humans on the surface. So it's likely we get more of that human interaction between Kipo and Mutos. I think think you also saw some in the trailer, some Golden Girls inspired goats. (laughs) They're a fun group of mutes. Now that sounds interesting. (laughs) Golden Girl goats. Mm, The triple G's. With working in the animation industry, are there like any misconceptions that you feel should be corrected? Oh, interesting. Uh, That's an interesting question. I mean, the big one is like timelines. Like sometimes I'll be working on a movie for four or five years before it comes out. Or even with Kipo, we had finished it like a long time ago, like before. So like people are writing, giving me ideas or online. They're like, oh, you should do this. And I'm like, we already finished that a long time ago. It's being animated in Korea right now. <laughs> so, yeah, I think that's a common thing I've always seen is that people assume you should put this and that in there, but it's like, that's already been done. It's over. It's like, so it's all drawn on paper and, and it's like 22,000 drawings per episode. So, you know, it gets shipped off to Korea and we got to wait for it to all get animated and, and put together and make the music. So that, that takes uh, a long time. Continuing off what you just said, uh, is Kipo more like the digital animation or through traditional means? It's hand-drawn, every single frame. Uh, they scan it into the computer and color it digitally. 
Mm. So it's like that. It's sort of a, like a nice mix of of the uh, styles. Mm-hmm. Mm. I think I was noticing that. I also kind of noticed that um, Kipo sort of has a reminiscence of, say, the original Teen Titans series from the 2000s. Was that intentional or just like happy coincidence? Or Well, I mean, when I was coming out of college and trying to learn how to draw, I was looking at a lot of Teen Titan model sheets. I just liked that style. And I think that that style, just that and Tech and Concrete and various anime and different, they just, I just would copy a lot and study and it just kind of became a part of my vocabulary, so to speak. Kind of a race question, but I noticed with, with, the, with Kipo, we have all three protagonists are basically all black. Was that something you were thinking about or is it just, it just came naturally to do? You know, it's interesting because when I was doing the character designs, um, I was skating a lot. I had a skateboard company before and I had sponsored a couple kids that lived in Watson, Inglewood, and I was skating out there a lot. And uh, it it was kind of influenced by the kids I was skating with. Like Benson just looks like my buddy Isaiah that I skate with. Uh, So if I hadn't been skating with that crew, I, I might not have designed the characters that way. So they're basically, like the characters are more based on just your life and the people you've come across? Yeah, exactly. Mm. That's an, And that's then uh, our, our director, Chris, uh, just came to me one day and basically yelled at me, we're making Kipo's dad black. And I was like, uh, isn't that weird? She's she's Korean. He's like, I don't care. I want a black dad on screen. And so I was like, all right. <laughs> I think the first thing that was drawn to me for Kipo was the fact that she was black and then finding out more about her parents. It's like, oh, mm-hmm. she's a mixed race. That's actually pretty nice. And it's black with Asian. That's very different dynamic than yeah. most of the time. Yeah, that I mean, the dad being black definitely came from our crew and from Chris in particular. Just he, he felt like he hadn't seen that a lot in, in media and he just really wanted to see that. Mm. So it was just a matter of, you just wanted to have that, just wanted to have that because it's just such a rare. Yeah. He, he felt like it was an important thing to see. And I think you did a great job with getting Sterling K Brown as the dad. I think he, it manages yeah. to play the character very well. Like he's oh very- man, we were so lucky. He's he's a delight to work with. And man, he can sing so well. We were blown away. Yeah, that was something I was a little surprised about. I was like Sterling K. Brown, and he's got pipes. Okay, he should put out a record. No, <laughs> Purple Jaguar song is the most popular song on the on the uh, on the soundtrack. And also, just to mention it, I don't know if you saw the the season two mixtape drop today. Oh no, I was unaware of that. Yeah, so go check that out. And going on to music, a thing I've noticed like really helps with Kipo's identity is this big use of a lot of modern day tracks, but that still feel somewhat timeless. So the music felt like an amalgamation of different musical tastes and a mix of original songs and licensed music. So what was it like bringing all of that together and making it mesh? You know. I didn't, I specifically didn't mind if it wasn't timeless. And, and in my thinking, if I go back and I watch Top Gun now, it's kind of fun to go like back to the 80s. Or even when I watch some of the cartoons from my childhood, it's a little bit 
like it doesn't bother me that the music isn't current. So like I just went for it on like what I listened to, you know, like XXX Tentacion and and Lil Peep and stuff that I'm into. Um and and went for those types of vibes of even if at 10 years it'll feel like a throwback, you know? But that, I thought that's kind of fun in a way that even with the style of the clothing, like I, I like when you go back and watch the 80s animes and they have that 80s flair. I think that's kind of cool to, to try to make it kind of a cap, a time capsule of what you listen to right now or what you, how you dress right now. Mm. Right. Cause I, I know a common, a common complaint a lot of people have with say uh, media is that you have shows or movies that use a lot of pop culture songs and all that from like the top of the charts, but you went with more obscurist type songs, stuff that true enthusiasts would look up. And I feel like you managed to actually get a lot more people onto some songs that they were unaware of. Like I definitely went to download most of the songs that were in season one, pretty much that weren't the original songs. Part of the fun of that is like, we might've thrown in a song that you've heard of before when we were making the storyboards, but a lot, you can't afford those songs, right? So uh, James and Kier, our music supervisors, they would bring us stuff that we could afford, but that also meant they found it in some crazy place where I'm like, how have I not heard this song? This song's awesome. Um, and it would be something kind of in the same vein or same vibe, you know? Um, or uh, Daniel would create something in the vibe that we liked. Yeah. And a thing of note that I find common with a lot of um, uh, mo more or less shows or animated shows is that they don't, they sometimes won't tell you uh, like the songs if they use licensed music and, or they like just won't release a soundtrack was usually because they can't get their networks to do that for it or put, build out the money to actually release it. Was this uh, one of those cases where it wasn't hard to release a soundtrack? You were just well, like- if you look at the soundtrack, I think they're almost all originals except for uh, Girls Like, which they bought, but they had to pay for it to put it on the soundtrack. So uh, season two soundtrack, I believe is all original stuff. I don't, I don't think there's any of the license. And then we usually make a separate playlist where it, it has every single song as well, but it's not, it's not the soundtrack. And so continuing off of that, like, like you were able to, like, you didn't, like you were able to just drop all the original songs, like how you felt like you didn't have to face any like, major charges from like say netflix or dreamworks telling you hey we don't feel like putting out any money to release this well for the originals dreamworks buys them outright so they are able to release the soundtrack when they do it so they, they put that all kind of into the into the contract when they're making the music okay so it was just like you just just go right ahead throw it all out there give everybody that music because I, I will admit it, it would have been annoying had i find out it's like i can't get them i have to wait until i don't know someone decides to rip it from the episode or something i'm still <laughs> waiting for people to take the beats and like rap over them because there's some like some of the beats are good man like especially this season right like one of my favorites was a newton rap I, yeah 
I still can't believe we got Jizza to do that. <laughs> that was something that was such a major surprise to me that you managed to get Giza as not just he's also acting, but also you managed to get him for an actual legitimate rap song. What was that like getting him in there? My only thing that was I was sad about was he was in New York. So like we'd be recording him over the way we're doing this right now. So I didn't get to say hi to him in person, which bums me out because he was probably the one I was the most excited to meet out of the whole cast. <laughs> wow. Dang. So is was that a common thing for others or was it just mainly exclusive to Giza? Maybe two or three people were in New York. Uh, sometimes people who could sing well, like uh, Troy, the actor who uh, plays Troy is in New York because I, I believe he does like Broadway and stuff. So like going with that is when it comes to um, a lot of voice acting, some people, especially in these current times, like you have to get your own setups, get your own mic. Is that something that you feel the industry is going to start taking advantage of? Just having people record from, say, their houses and just with a good setup? It's interesting. Like uh, animation is one of the few jobs that's like just trucking along. We're, we're still working. And we've been doing all our temporary scratch just into our iPhones. So people will just record into their iPhones and that's what we're watching. So you do a temp pass usually of the screening where you can watch it with temporary voices, you know, people at the studio. And then when the actors come in, I have heard they've been mailing mics and mailing setups and asking them to like, can you find a closet to go into and record it? Like, uh, and no one quite knows if it'll be good enough for final yet. They might have to get replaced later. But everyone's just trucking along, trying to make it work. This one's going to um, about Benson with LGBT characters. With Benson being revealed to be gay, was there any challenges with that? Uh, you know, only internal with us wanting to make sure we did it well. Not, uh, there was no, like when I sold the project, I told them, you know, and then there's this gay character. And they wanted to make the character younger, so that they were still fine with him being gay. And it was interesting because the the executive said, "You can have a gay character, but he has to say the words I'm gay." And we were like, "Oh, cool! That, that sounds great." <laughs> okay, that that's a little surprising to me. Usually, because usually you hear about how, like, if you want to have a gay character, it has to be somewhat secret. It has to be. Like, they can't outright say they're gay, but your executives just straight up said it's like they have to explicitly say it? Yeah, I think they felt like a lot of times people kind of beat around the bush or hint at things. They're like, just say it. Just be out and open with it. I think that'd be better. We're like, yeah, that's great. So was this like, the was this the Netflix executives or DreamWorks? DreamWorks. Hmm. Okay, I think that makes a lot of sense. Cause but Drake, Netflix never said anything about it at, at any point. Yeah, I, f- I figured Netflix probably would be a lot yeah. more easier. I mean, it's interesting because I've been on projects where that's hard to do. Um, and I think it has to do with the financial problems. Like, I've been on pro- like movies where they change stuff because they're afraid of backlash and they're afraid it'll hurt their bottom line 
but a Netflix show, I don't think anybody's concerned about that. You know, there's no ticket sales. There's no, uh, you can kind of do whatever you want to do, which is great. Oh, so the biggest thing was the fact that it's like, you don't have to worry about, say, another country banning you or anything because Netflix is already set with its subscriber counts. It's in, it, it's interesting because sometimes, like, you'll notice Disney does this a lot where they, they just take the line out when they put it in that country. So you'll notice it's, like, a very easy-to-change spot. Mm. With season two, are there, like, moments where it's, like, there is no cutting that out? It is present. Yeah, Cut that I think out. I mean, you'd have to cut out, yeah, whole sections. <laughs> All right. So it's like straight up, you make it clear. It's like, this character is gay. You're yeah. not cutting that out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. That was interesting, too, because like not even having to do with Benson, but at one point they were like, we don't want any romance because kids don't want to see romance. And I stopped and I paused and I went, but like... Have you never seen Little Mermaid? She's in love with the guy or Beauty and the Beast. And I like looked at the person like confused and they went, oh, you're right. I guess the kids don't mind it. I'm like, yeah, what are you talking about? (laughs) And then there wasn't an issue anymore. That's, That's my tip for anybody making a show. If anyone tells you not to do something, just find an example or two of where they did it and it made a lot of money incite that and then they'll be like oh okay i guess you can do (laughs) so yeah the biggest thing would just be if if, like if someone tells you no just cite something that did it already but that was financially successful (laughs) oh it was even like uh you know what's interesting is in terms of a diverse cast as soon as black panther came out you're able to go well black panther did it and it made a lot of money you know um, I don't think we would have been able to make our show before that, you know? Mm. So, so if anything, Black Panther helped act as a sort of semi-catalyst for Kipo? Yeah, definitely. For I think for across the board, you, you could prove, because there was this thought in Hollywood that it would make less money or people wouldn't go watch it if you had an all-black cast or an all-minority cast. Um, and I think these movies now are knocking down that preconception and people are going oh that isn't the case i guess we can make whatever we want to make mm. yeah that's interesting like because i do feel like kipo is definitely one of those shows that helps break a bit more of the barriers because you know we got get out being a bigger introduction to black people in horror then we got mm-hmm. black panther with more people accepting mainstream black people as actual superheroes not just the anti-heroes like blade kipo being more in the vein of black people involved in a fantasy world. Yeah, for sure. So with creators having more abilities to connect with their fan base online through social media, what's your take on creators' relationship with fans? It's interesting. Like, uh, I can definitely see why creators don't get involved, don't hit the forum, don't talk to people, because you do run into some weird situations where people are, like, trying to ask you stuff or, or whatever. So, uh I think, I think I've been kind of lucky. I, I've just been chatting with people and, and it's been mostly friendly. <laughs> you know, sometimes you run into people, but it's just try to be kind, right? <laughs> this is something a little bit of a rarity. It's like this whole creators 
sitting down with actual critics of their shows, do you feel there's a certain way of mending that uh, bridge between creators and critics? Uh, you know what? I love reading, even when people hate the show, I- I'm happy to read, or not even hate, but if they, if they say the things they don't like, I, I kind of just take it as a learning curve, like, oh, okay, so some people don't like this kind of thing, or they don't like that kind of thing, or oh, they would have liked that better. Oh, that's interesting. I hadn't thought about that. And it's something I can take with me to the next project as well and to remember, um, especially if two or three people are saying the same thing. So, yeah, I don't I don't mind if people are going to be critical. So continuing off of that, like with this boom of internet critics, you might get those critics who are just uh, a little clearly having some type of personal grievance with it. Would you uh, say those are the type the critics you tend to avoid? Uh, I mean, I'd have a healthy debate debate with that type of person if they wanted to. Like, I, I do notice, notice that if there ever is a very strong dislike, it's always followed by this is not appropriate for children or something of that nature. And I go, okay, I understand why they don't like this. <laughs> um, it, I'm not the kind of person that's not going to engage with people that have a, I would still try to talk with that person, you know, maybe change some minds. But if they asked me something or if they, if they tweeted out to me or whatever, I would, I would probably respond. Mm. So it's more about just if, if say someone's giving out a critic just misunderstood this about the show or so you you'd be wanting to correct the mistake. No, I don't want to correct their mistake. I'll let them. I'll let them do whatever they want to do. But if they specifically reach out and ask me something, like DM me or something, I'll respond. I don't know. It's kind of it, it's interesting because in a way, it's like you you should feel free to critique it however you want without feeling like you're hurting someone's feelings or getting too close with the creator. So, so in a way, like, I, I don't want to say if you don't like the show, you should go talk to the creator. <laughs> right. So it's more a matter of just enjoy the show. If you have, if you have some grievances, maybe try being a bit more constructive about it. Maybe ask a question, you know, it's interesting. Like, I, I sometimes it's it's sometimes it's a fun time to to hear an angry critic, right? Like when Ebert, Robert Ebert, or whatever, were like ripping a film apart. I mean, sometimes that's a good time. I'm not gonna say don't ever do that. Or so, you, so you're not against the uh, like critics being super harsh on something? No, nah, it's not gonna bother me. <laughs> that's a good attitude to have. I mean, I just know a few clearly have some type of bias. Like, they're trying to be mad, even though you could watch it yourself, and it's like, why are you mad? Yeah. (laughs) Some of them, that's like their shtick, you know? I'm the angry critic guy. Yeah, kind of to get us back on music, was there any difficulties keeping consistency in all these different musical tastes? No, you know, it's interesting is, so we would get five to ten songs and um they'd layer layer them over the scene and we just watch them in a row and rarely i'd have to say none of those ten works send another ten but usually 
one of them I liked, and it my personal way of picking music was I always went with the song that I would want to actually listen to whether I was watching the show or not. Even if there was one that fit the rhythm a little bit better, but I just didn't love the song, I'd pick the one that I, I liked the song itself more. And that was just my personal taste or way of doing things, which I know it, I have like some people like it. And, and I, I noticed like Tarantino does that a lot. Like it's just a cool song and it feels cool over the scene, but it's, it maybe it, some people feel like that's not a right fit for it. And, but I like just, I like doing that more than it fitting so perfect, you know? Yeah. So, so when it comes to the music choices, it's all about trying to create the scene to work with the song. So the scene will already be done. We'll, right. we'll have put like a tent, like for instance, in season one, episode two, the, you know, when the giant buddy shows up and destroys the frog village, hmm. we had put like uh, the broccoli song by little Yachty and Dram over that. And it all played really well. And then in that case, Daniel created a score that had a similar vibe. But let's say it was a, a song, they would send you like 10 songs that would fit also, that had a similar hmm. beat. So we could have gotten some uh, drama on here at one point, but uh, honestly, I, th- I imagine he could play a character that would fit like perfectly. Yeah. <laughs> but, like, we got a lot of very very interesting and creative ideas with all these different moods. We got Jazzercise, Raccoons, the Timber Cats, Rock and Roll, Punk, Snakes. What was like the biggest thing that in- inspired that, all those different creatures? Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, I- honestly, it's the old trope of like the Batman villains. Like they always had a theme, like the Joker all his henchmen were like clown clown themed or even the Riddler. And he was like riddle themed. You know what I mean? That, that kind of classic superhero trope um, just applied to animals. And, <laughs> and the themes were more just stuff you see around LA. <laughs> like basically if we went to LA, we'd be seeing every piece of inspiration for Kipo. Yeah. Like I, I think at the time I had tried out like a CrossFit class and people were dressed like those raccoons and they were basically just the cross, CrossFitters. Uh, and then the the Timbercats, there's a there's a coffee shop where the baristas dress like that. They all have the matching flannel shirts and they have little suspenders, which I didn't add in the beanie. But uh, <laughs> I was like, look at these guys. They're like a full-on costume. <laughs> oh, man. All right. So... Anything you want to say to kind of look out for for season two? Ooh. Uh, no, just uh, tell your friends to watch it. Spread the word. Um, I will say in – there's a place called Brunchington Beach, and it has a great intro song. So enjoy that. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much for this. This was very insightful, and it's been pretty fun getting all this information talking with you on this cool thank you all for joining us and always remember it's just a thought